Oh, thank you so much. Those songs fit so well into what we're going to talk about this morning. It was remarkable singing them. I thought I was singing my sermon, and uh, that's good. So thank you for that. Um, if you'd open to Galatians 3, and as you turn there, um, this is probably one of the more difficult chapters that Paul's ever written in the New Testament, and so we're going we're gonna to look at this. There's some great stuff, and, um, and I trust that uh, as we, we go through this that you'll kind of uh, stick with it a little bit, um, and you'll see where we're going. Um, as I was reading this, I, there's some things, a lot of things that emerged in my mind, but believe it or not, one of them was a trip that Cindy and I took to Utah. Uh, some years ago, we were at a conference in Salt Lake City, and um, Cindy was looking ahead of time to maybe some things we could visit during our downtime, and, and, and she saw just near Salt Lake City in Midway is a, a studio of one of the artists she really likes, Robert Duncan. And so she's like, hey, here, we can just take a little trip over to Midway. It's, it's just uh, it's just right over here, man. It's not very far away. And uh, that, that should have raised flags. Um, and so she's like, and, and there's a highway that goes around, but I, I found a road that goes straight there. Let's take that one. We'll, say, we'll cut our time in half. And so we started, and we kind of got to this little town, and, and, uh, and we tried to find the road. We couldn't find it, and we found a jogger out there. And she's, oh, yeah. There, there's the road. Oh, you're going to love this trip because when you get on top of the hill, it's like the sound of music. And oh, uh-oh. Cindy's like, oh, this is going to be great. And so the, the first flag should have been when we turned up this road, there was a, like a gate that says, impassable after October. Well, we weren't in October, but we were getting there. And, and so up this hill we went in this rent-a-car four-cylinder, which was just dying going up this hill and and it kept going and going soon there's snow up here and then we're like the end of july so i'm like wow we're up here and and we're still going up and and we got up there now i'm white knuckling it because i'm looking down and there there's midway but it's way way down there and i'm like and i'm looking at this road thinking man i don't know if my brakes are going to handle this and um and so cindy's like well let's stop up here so we ain't stopping I said, we, we're going to get down there, albeit maybe really fast, but we're, we're going to get down there. <laughs> and so we began to go and weave, and you could smell the brakes halfway down. I'm like, this, this was not a really good idea, honey. And, but it's like the sound of music. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. And so we finally made it to the bottom, and I'm, I'm breathing much easier and everything like this. And, and so we got to the studio and everything, and, uh, and I'm like, we're not, we're not going back that way, honey. Um, I hope you enjoyed that trip. Um, but it was worth the journey. Don't tell her this, by the way. She's not here, so I can get away with it. It was really pretty. And, uh, and I did enjoy it a, a little bit. And, but don't, don't put her onto that. Uh, let her think that was a real trial for me, okay? I appreciate it. And, uh, it, it but it was, worth, it was worth the journey. The studio, the pictures, and, and uh, getting over and seeing all the scenery. It was really, really, really worth the journey. And uh, we're going to be ascending three hills this morning. And... And it's going to be worth the journey. You need to stick with it a little bit. Uh, as I, We're going to read these verses right now as we go through verses 6 through 25. I'm going to read them. And as we go through it, some of you are like, this, is, this doesn't make sense. Or it's just, it really doesn't seem important. Stick with it. It, it will be worth the journey. And so read, follow along and 
Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 6 through 25. As Paul takes us on a history tour through the Old Testament. Verse 6, even so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. For as many are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise. But God has granted to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under tutor. Let's pray. Lord, as we look this morning at your word, we ask and desire that your spirit would open our eyes. We could really see. Your spirit would open our hearts that we would embrace these truths. Indeed, rejoice in them. We thank you for all that Galatians has to say to us. And trust today as we take this journey through this passage that your spirit would just bring us to a place of renewed focus, a renewed purpose in our life. For it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, Paul's taking us to three hills. The first one is Abraham's covenant. The second one is the covenant with Moses. And the third one, this great one, this this majestic one, leads us to Christ. And so let's begin this journey. First, God's covenant with Abraham. Verse 6. Now remember up to this point, Paul 
especially in chapter 2, has just got done speaking to his hearers about justification by faith. He elaborated on the, the, the truth that they were guilty before a holy God, but Christ came and justified us before God. And it wasn't by anything we did. It was all by grace. And so now he takes his hearers and us to almost a different angle. Because his, his hearers had begun to argue that it was, yes, it was Christ, but it was Christ plus circumcision. And so Paul, in, in, in a winsome way, goes back and says, okay, you want to talk circumcision, let's go back to where it all began. Let's talk about your father Abraham, which is what they called And so in this Old Testament account, we learn clearly that God's promise shows us just how essential faith is. This theme runs through Galatians. And to demonstrate this point, Paul introduces Abraham. Again, not for the least of the reasons was that he was the first man to be circumcised. And he quotes Genesis 3, 12-3. And so let's read this passage, which he quotes a verse out of. Genesis chapter 12. God speaking to Abram at this point. His name would become Abraham shortly. Here's what God says to him. Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's pretty powerful. That's a promise he made to Abraham. It's a significant promise. And God blesses his people. And he does it by grace alone. Now let's observe a couple things here. God promised to bless Abraham. And keep in mind, he'd done nothing to deserve this privilege. And Abraham's story reminds us that God's grace is significant, and we see it all the way back in Genesis. Note Abraham didn't make a covenant with God. God made the covenant with Abraham. God initiated it. And it's even more clear in Genesis chapter 15. If you flip there, since you're in Genesis already. Verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me since I am childless? The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, Since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. In other words, there is no one. (laughs) Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. He took him outside and said, now look, look toward the heavens, count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord. He reckoned it to him as righteousness. God was promising to bless all the nations through Abraham. But at this point, Abraham, he didn't have a single heir. Not only that, Sarah, his wife, is unable to have a child. This is a huge problem, (laughs) a big problem. And as God extends his grace, he demonstrates that grace by an incredible promise. 
Now, let's look at this really quickly here and understand why it's such a remarkable promise. Abraham's 99 years old. Sarah's 90 by this time that the child arrives. The prospects for offspring are not looking good. I mean, Sarah's not shopping in the infant section. That's not even on her radar. It's impossible, humanly speaking. But the promises to Abraham, God says, listen, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to be a blessing to nations, descendants. As a matter of fact, look up, try to count the stars. So will your descendants be, Abraham. It's pretty remarkable, this promise. And we also go on to read that in this account in Genesis 15, I encourage you to read the whole chapter this week, that God made with Abraham. In that day, an oath would be confirmed in a very unique way. You know, if we have an, uh, an agreement or an oath, and we would just like, well, we'd sign a contract, both parties. And that would be the agreement. Not back then. They signed a contract, well, really differently. They would have animals they sacrificed, and they'd cut them in two. Yeah, I know. And they, they'd separate them, and they, they'd face each, each of those offering, each of these animals, towards one another. And there'd be a space between them. And both parties would walk between these animals, and they got to the other side. It was agreed. They had signed the contract. They'd signed the oath. That's how they did it then. But what's remarkable in Genesis 15 is Abraham sets it all up, and then he falls asleep. And while he's asleep, we're told fire went between these, these animals. In other words, it was just God who went through. Abraham didn't go through. What's the whole point of that is God took responsibility for the whole covenant. He said, I'm the one who's going to carry this through. Matter of fact, Abraham, you're going to have nothing to do with this. There's nothing you're going to be able to do or could ever do to be a blessing to the nations. It's going to be what I'm going to do. And so God went through the pieces. God signed, if I may, the covenant, the contract. God enacted the covenant while Abraham was asleep. And so only the Lord passed between the pieces because he wanted to make it abundantly clear, Abraham, this is not going to be because of your efforts. This is not going to be because of your works. And Abraham's righteousness was credited to him. It was given to him. He didn't earn it. When Paul, having Genesis 15 in mind, he is simply pointing out to the Galatians the impossibility of God adding obedience demands to his covenantal promise. God guaranteed it. He would keep his promise. And so by grace... We read all the way back into Abraham, grace took us back there. By grace alone, God blesses his people. And by faith alone, God's people receive his blessing. Abraham simply believed God. He didn't do anything. He simply believed. And because he believed, and because he did so in the face of such an outlandish promise, namely that he'd have a son, and through his son all the nations on earth would be blessed. We're told in Romans 4, 9 through 12, we're told that righteousness was credited to Abraham, get this, before he was circumcised. So the argument that circumcision was necessary for salvation 
really didn't even have any merit when he go all the way back to Abraham because he wasn't circumcised till after the promise was given and after he believed the promise. And so Paul's argument to his Galatians, I'm sure they probably were getting quieter and quieter by the moment as he took them through this, this basically lesson from the Old Testament. And by faith alone, God's people receive his blessing. Read Hebrews 11. It tells of men and women who received God's blessings through faith, not by what they did. Faith and faith alone. It was credit to him, credit to them as righteousness. Now some will say, that's it? I mean, have faith in God? That's kind of dangerous, Matt. Doesn't that lead to loose living? Doesn't that lead to careless living? Scripture clarifies for us, we become righteous before God through faith in Christ, and this faith is demonstrated by uncompromising obedience. Consider Abraham. Received the promise, believed it, it was credited to him as righteousness. Then he wound up leaving everything familiar to him and going to a strange land. And then circumcision followed. He did all these things after he'd received the promise. You see, his faith showed itself in some remarkable obedience. Radical obedience, you might call it. And what happened after Abraham's faith was credited as righteousness? He obeyed. You see, that's what embracing God's grace brings. Radical obedience. You follow Christ because you get to. Not because you have to. You follow Christ because you're so consumed by what he's done for you and so overwhelmed, you consider it a privilege to obey. And so we do. In Genesis 12, right after God promised Abraham great blessing, Abraham left his father's land, everything familiar, and went where God told him. I always thought of our missionaries as I read that. What would take somebody away from all the comforts of their home and what would cause them to go to a strange place where living conditions are less than desirable, to probably place a more financial hardship than they had here, what would cause a missionary to do that? You think they're doing it to earn God's favor? Oh, absolutely not. Talk to our missionaries. They're going because they're so overwhelmed by the grace of God and the salvation they have, they just have to share it. It's an overflow of a heart. They're not trying to earn their salvation. Never... Yet I met a missionary who said, you know what, I'm going to reach these people so I can get to heaven. Never met one. Because they get it. They get it. It's by grace. And a response to that grace is faith. And because of that, we walk in obedience. When you trust Christ, you do things that seem crazy to the world. And not because you're earning your salvation, but because you believe God. You embrace his grace, and you walk in faith. It's carried out in obedience. People who are saved by grace alone through faith, they don't sit back and indulge in sin. They don't sit back and indulge in the ways of the world like so many others. Why? Because they believe God. And they risk it all because they know God is good, and that he's all-sufficient, and that he's everything they could ever desire. And so they obey. That's the picture scripture gives us. That's the first hill. God's covenant with Abraham. 
But Paul takes us to a second hill. It's a covenant with Moses. Look at verse 15 through 18. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it's only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Drop down a little bit, verse 17. What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. There's a lot going on in what Paul's saying here. The least of which the Judaizers of his day Many of his hearers, those who'd infiltrated this church in Galatia, they recognized the the importance of the Abrahamic covenant. But what they began to look at is said, hey, this, this covenant with Moses, which came 430 years later, see, it must be more important. It must have done away with that covenant with Abraham. And instead of looking at the Mosaic covenant through the lens of the covenant with Abraham, They led them to emphasize the law given to Moses as primary. So they reasoned, the Judaizers, that because Moses' covenant was superior to Abraham's, in order to be right with God, we need to follow the laws given to Moses. You see what they're doing? They're elevating Moses' covenant over Abraham's, even to the point that that one was obsolete in some of their minds, not all of them. But they had a faulty view of how they viewed it. And here is a key truth. You have a couple words to fill in. Don't miss this, or you're going to really miss a lot of Galatians 3. God's covenant with Moses does not replace nor contradict his covenant with Abraham. Instead, God's covenant with Moses complements God's covenant with Abraham. And the necessity of faith is there in both covenants. And Paul knew that his hearers saw Moses' law as greater, as more important. He knew his hearers thought, if we're to get the blessing that God promised to Abraham, we're now going to have to do it by obeying the law. But Paul shows this is a faulty conclusion. Look at the end of verse 17. It does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. In other words, if you look at this new covenant, it doesn't make the other one obsolete. Matter of fact, following the law doesn't mean all of a sudden that the promise is no good or that, you know, that we no longer believe the promise. In other words, you can't separate Moses' covenant from Abraham's covenant. They complement each other. They don't contradict each other. They're not, not in opposition to one another. The law of Moses cannot turn God's promise to Abraham into anything other than it was. A promise. It was a promise. Paul's adamant, he's unrelenting, either it comes by grace or it comes by works. He puts it right out there. His hearers really struggle with this. And the reason they struggle is because they didn't climb the first hill and the second one and understand they complemented each other. And because of that, they didn't understand the third hill, which is coming. Now note, to clarify, most of Paul's references to the law deal with the commandments and requirements God gave to his people through Moses. These moral, these ceremonial and civil laws, they came together to form the law. And so most often, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's really high, when Paul refers to the law, that's what he's talking about. The covenant with Moses. Now look at verse 10. 
Here, if you go back in Galatians 3, and we see something remarkable. For as many are as under the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by, you might want to underline, all things written in the book of the law to perform them. As he starts talking about the law, he begins talking about the law can't do. The law can't bring life. It can't bring freedom. It can't bring righteousness. It can't bring salvation. And so you get to the obvious question he asks in verse 19. Why the law then? I mean, Paul, if you're telling us that it's by grace alone and we have faith alone in Christ's grace, what's the point of the law? So what? Why did the law come? It's a legit question, he answers. It's probably a natural one as, we, as you're listening. You're like, okay, so what's the big deal with the law? Well, there was a purpose to the law. The first one we're reading verse 19 through 23, and that is, look at verse 19. Law, what the, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. There's the first purpose. It was added because of transgressions. In other words, the law shows us the futility of the flesh. God wanted to provide his people with a clear statement of his standards so the people could see their need for grace. Paul quotes verse 10 to show the law demands obedience, perfect obedience. And in that, the law shows us the futility of our efforts to try to keep it. It shows us we're not perfect. It shows us we can't be perfect. And thus, it really, in a sense, the law exposes our sin. It doesn't make us sinner. Rather, it reveals the fact we're already sinners. Romans chapter 3 through Romans chapter 7, at the very least, there are other sections where this jumps off the pages. Maybe a good analogy would be giving, when you and I give instructions to our children. Think about it. Our children have a sinful heart. But that heart isn't obvious to us. That heart condition is not obvious. Until I give a command. Then, all of a sudden, especially if you remember little kids, you were abhorred the first time they said no. You're like, oh, my little angel. It's not an angel. They said no to me. A heart-wrenching moment. And what did you learn then? You learn something, that their heart, that there's sin in their heart, and the reason you know it is because you gave a command. And they disobeyed the command. That's how you learn they had a sinful heart. You see, the command brings disobedient heart to the surface. So you and I need to listen to the law's analysis. You see, the law confronts you and I with our disobedience. And that's a significant thing. Because verse 23 tells us before faith came, we were kept in custody. Now when you hear that kept in custody, you think of what? In prison, right? You're in jail. You're locked up is another translation. The law doesn't bring freedom. It shows us we're sinful people. We're disobedient people. And it holds us in custody to that. It doesn't provide the way out. It just shows us we need a way out. (laughs) We're sinful people. And so in that, it removes the freedom. Non-gospel-based religion brings a sense of bondage, brings a sense of impersonal relationship with God because it's motivated either by a desire for reward or for fear of punishment. 
And it brings in anxiety about one's standing before God. That's why we need grace. Seems to be the whole point of Paul writing this letter and why he's so passionate. Is he wants to awaken in them grace and a new awareness of it as he wants to do in us as well. Verse 24 and 25 give us a second purpose of the law. It serves as a tutor. Therefore, the law has become our tutor. A tutor, in this case, the law prepares us for the promise. It leads us to Christ. It also continues to serve us, by the way. If you look in the New Testament, there's some passages refer to the law in the Old Testament. Romans 15.4 says, it is for our learning. 1 Corinthians 10.1-10 says it's for our encouragement. 2 Timothy 3.14-15 says it's for our wisdom. It's still The law still leads us to Christ. It still is a tutor in that sense. But now what's the result of transgressing this law? We stand beneath the curse of the law. Verse 10 highlights that. We stand beneath the curse. The result of our sin and disobedience is we all deserve the wrath of God. You need to come to grips with that. Your sins aren't just little mistakes. They're grievous before a holy God. And because of that, we deserve wrath. And the law showed us, every single one of us, that we're cursed beneath it. And as a result, we stand condemned before God. You see, we have a God who has no sin, and he's wholly set against sin. And each of us stands under the curse of the law, and the law given by the sovereign judge of the universe, and the law is given to remind us we cannot make our way to a holy God. And the more we try to obey the law in this way, the more the law says guilty. Guilty. That's why we can't shrink back from talking about words like curse, condemnation, wrath, disobedience. You see, if no one brings up these words, we think we're okay. But we're not. And the law points that out to us. We desperately need a Savior to deliver us from the curse and condemnation that is due our disobedience and due our rebellion in the flesh. But look at verse 23 and 24. They're good. (laughs) So good. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. It's to lead us to Christ, that third most majestic hill. Christ. God's covenant through Christ. You might find it interesting. I found it more than a little interesting, not surprising. Galatians chapter 3, verse 20, one of the reasons this is a tough passage is a verse like verse 20, where I'm told there's over, over 250 interpretations of this one verse. Whew. Hope we got time this afternoon. Gonna, no. I'm not going to solve necessarily that. But I guess my perspective would probably come through. But obviously the law was not given first-hand encounter with God. Matter of fact, we even read there were some angelic messengers involved. The law, in a sense, was given, and there are some angelic messengers involved in this thing. But it came through a middleman, Moses. 
But if there's a middleman, as there was at Sinai, then the people are not dealing directly with God, are they? Moses came. He kind of served as that middleman. But the original promise is a direct blessing by God, received by faith. In other words, the promise fulfilled in the gospel is unilateral. God is one, verse 20 says. Meaning that God not only gave the law, but he kept the conditions of it on our behalf. That's pretty powerful, what Paul's getting at. You see, God's covenant came through Christ. We're told in Abraham's covenant how essential faith is. Moses' covenant shows us how futile in our fleshly our efforts are. And then this third hill is the most impressive yet. Because God's son shows us that freedom is possible. He brings both covenants into reality. It's a beautiful picture we're getting painted in Galatians 3. We're told in verse 19 that Jesus fulfills the law of Moses. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a meteor until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. You're like, okay, who's the seed? Back to verse 16, we learn it's Christ. He's the seed. Now notice the temperature, temporary nature of the law. It was given until something else would come. Or actually someone else would come. There's a temporary nature to it. The Mosaic law with all its ceremonies, with all its rituals, its priesthood, its sacrifices, was given until Christ came. And Colossians 2.17 tells us it was all a shadow pointing to the substance, which is Christ. Everything in the law was shouting to you and I, look to Christ, you can't keep this. You need grace. It shouted to Christ. It pointed to that third majestic hill and say, there's your answer. Turn to Christ. Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. In other words, as far as righteousness is concerned, we can only get it through Christ. Christ alone. And so Jesus fulfills the law of Moses. We also know that he obeyed the law of God for us. Perfectly. Jesus alone has a righteousness that is sufficient before God. No other religious teacher in the Bible or outside the Bible can claim a righteousness of his own merit before God. Only Jesus. No one else has the credentials that Christ has one of perfection. Matter of fact, I was reading this past week. Dalai Lama was called His Holiness. Once stated when asked a question, he says, I'm probably not as good as some of the other Dalai Lamas. I'm like, so much for His Holiness. <laughs> if you grade it on a curve, this one might be a B plus. Even he didn't claim perfection. Years ago, I was reading some of Muhammad's writings. He never claimed perfection. You see, Christ stands alone. He's in a category all his own. And he kept the law perfectly. We can't keep the law. But praise be to God that someone kept it for us. Jesus Christ, he never sinned. He's the righteous one. And not only did he keep the law perfectly for us, he endured God's wrath for us. You see, there's a penalty for sin. And he paid that penalty. Because Christ redeemed us, he became, what Galatians says, he became a curse for us. 
clothed in his perfection, we appear before the great judge, the righteous judge, and when he looks at you, believe me, he doesn't see your works because <laughs> you got nothing. He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ if you've come to him and he accepts us. That's why salvation can only be found in Christ. He's the only perfect sacrifice. He's the only one who paid for your sins. He's the only one who became a curse for, for, for you. How dare we think we could stand before God in our own merit and say, I'm good enough. No, it points to the third hill, Galatians. Christ. Christ. The law drives us to our faces to say with Paul, what a wretched man that I am. And this is the hill to which the Mosaic Covenant points, Calvary. The crucifixion of Christ, where he takes the curse of the law upon himself. Not only does Christ fulfill the law of Moses, he completes the promise to Abraham. As one from Abraham's lineage, Jesus completes the promise to Abraham. Jesus is the seed to which the promise pointed. Christ perfectly lived the life of faith that the Bible describes. And he died so that the blessing of God would be made known to all the nations, as the original promise stated. Through trusting in Christ, we become children of Abraham, the people of God. I didn't come to Christ until I was 19. And I didn't grow up in a church, and so somewhere along the line as a Christian, I, I kind of was part of a church and introduced to some of these songs. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them, and so are you so. Okay, so you heard the song, okay? But what threw me for the song is lift your right arm. Well, I think, what's this, what's this about? And then, and then you're trying to do all these things, and, and, and I didn't read that in Genesis, so I was a little perplexed, because it's not in there. But I recognize something learning that song, and it's one beautiful thing about teaching children songs is Abraham was kind of important, and I was the son of Abraham, and I didn't quite get all that. And, uh, and then I read in Galatians, all those in Christ, that's us, the children of Abraham. We're the people of God. And so Abraham is pointing us to Christ. That's why Jesus said, and to me is one of the incredibly remarkable statements he said to his religious hearers in John 8, 56, as they were questioning his credentials, and they're talking about how great their father Abraham, Jesus said this to them. Abraham was overjoyed that he'd see my day. He saw it and rejoiced. Oh, his hearers must have been ticked off. You'd say your father Abraham's great and what Jesus is saying, he pointed to me, and because he pointed to me, he rejoiced of the day I would come. Because I came and completed the promise given to him. Jesus completes the promise to Abraham, and by grace alone he gives salvation to us. Paul continually, he's adamantly pointing the Galatians that they've done nothing to merit their salvation. It's always been that way. This is not a new teaching, Paul, saying go back to Abraham, climb the first mountain. He pointed to Christ. 
Climb the second mountain, the Mosaic Covenant, and you're going to find it appointed to Christ. We needed Christ. And climb the third one, the pinnacle, the majestic hill, and you'll find Christ. He completed the promise. He fulfilled the law. Salvation is here by grace alone, by faith alone. You can't earn it. That's the message of Galatians, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful how the picture gets painted here. Sorry, I'm excited. But it's not alone. It's, there's a remarkable thing about this whole thing. You're like, okay, I'm in Christ, but I still have this dilemma of trying to walk in obedience. I keep flubbing up. I got no power to do it. I'm glad you wondered about that. Verse 14, here it is. In order that in Jesus Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Most of us are Gentiles in here. So that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. The promise of the Spirit. How do we receive it? Same way Abraham did. By faith. And because of the Spirit of God, we don't try to live a life for God from the outside in. But now because of the Spirit of God within us, we live this life from the inside out. We have a new heart, a transformed life, a power we did not have before. And Paul mentions this gift and it's a reminder that the blessings we receive in the new covenant in Christ are even greater than the blessings of the Old Testament. And as believers, we actually have the living presence of Christ in us. By faith, we trusted Christ. And when we did that, we received his spirit. Two hills. They've led us to the third one. I trust it's been worth the journey. As you and I experience all that that means. I prayed for this moment this week. I know there'd be people in this room, church attenders who, for however many years, have been trying to get it right, to make it right, struggling, and you've been wrestling with victory over sin, been trying so hard to be right with God and find a sense of peace, and you haven't found it. You tried harder and harder this week, and you thought, if I try harder and harder next week, then, then maybe I can get that peace. New Year's resolutions came and they've gone. And trying and harder and harder hasn't worked. I want to invite you to do something. Stop. Look to Christ. Look to heaven and see the righteousness of Christ. And know that you're counted righteous by trusting in him. He's your righteousness. And that because of that, you're right before God. You have peace with God simply by trusting him and believing and when you and I believe God, it's credited to us as righteousness. And what an astounding, awe-inspiring truth that right here in this holy moment that you could believe God for the first time, believe in Christ like that, and for the first time, not based on anything you've done or anything you will do, but can have credited to you righteousness. It's a remarkable promise, and some of you have never done that. You've never come to Christ and said, there's nothing I can do to enter into a relationship with God. I'm sinful. The law has shown me over and over. And so I fall on my face before you and cry, grace, please save me. Have you done that? And by faith, believe the promise that he who knew no sin became sin for you. So you might become the righteousness of God. We need to make a decision. Your church going ain't going to cut it. Your life of good works isn't good enough. That's what each of these first two hills pointed to. We need the third. 
Christ. I can't emphasize that enough. It's an amazing thought to me. See him. Believe him. And it's credited to you and I as righteousness. So go to Christ. You can't do it without him. There's just time we continually come and remind ourselves I need him. I need Christ. He's my everything. And he's all I want. Look to Christ. And I guarantee that journey's worth it. Let's pray. Lord, this week, even right now as I speak, I just feel lost in the ocean of such immense truth. Such beautiful truth. I'm also, Lord, lost in the grandeur of the picture Paul paints from Abraham on. And how your promise has always been by grace. And throughout the scriptures and throughout our lives, you continually bring us to the point where we would see we desperately need you. And that there's no salvation without you. There's no other name under heaven in which we can be saved but you, Jesus. And so we come, claiming nothing but the blood of Jesus is what's necessary for our salvation. And I plead with you, if you're in this room, you look back in your life and say, I don't know if I've ever, ever fallen before God and said, God, I can't do it. I claim your grace as my only means of salvation. If you have not done that, I, I, I can't urge you enough to do that. Lord, please continue in each of us to remove all the fog, all the things in our life which cause us to look to everything but you. Knowing you, Jesus, it's all that matters. And so this day we look to you with awe and wonder and faith and we worship you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.